We are in Esther, so if you want to open to chapter 1. Esther, of course, the queen of Persia who saved the Jews from extermination with her wholehearted commitment to God, risking her life to save her people by coming uninvited before the king, her famous declaration, if I perish, I perish. They turned that into t-shirts after, uh, no, probably not. Now, however, she didn't start that way. When we first meet her, she is anything but committed. In fact, her heart isn't into walking with God at all. As the book opens, we'll see Esther enter the king's harem as a contestant to become his next queen. She did so willingly, not by force, uh, sort of like being on The Bachelor, only way worse for those of you who watch television. In her preparations, Esther ate foods which were prohibited for a Jew. Compare Daniel and his three friends in a similar situation in Babylon about a century earlier. Esther would have known about Daniel since Persia conquered Babylon and Daniel had been involved at a high level in the Persian government under Darius who ruled before the king that Esther married. And so Esther... We don't know how old she was, but she was older than Daniel, who was probably 15 with his friends. And uh, Daniel, you remember, said, hey, I'm not eating that stuff. Uh, We are just not going to break from our dietary regulations. This was no beauty contest to win the king's affections. The women, Esther included, were being prepared to have sexual relations with the king. Esther married the king. Marriage to a non-Jew was strictly prohibited by God's law. Her contemporaries, Nehemiah and Ezra, who had left Persia to go back to Jerusalem, they were forcing Jews who had married Persians to get divorces and get back to their tribal mentality, all the while that Esther was marrying the king. And it was almost five years from the time Esther became queen to the time she revealed her true identity as a Jew. As queen, she would eat and dress and act like a Persian, and that would include worshiping like a Persian. And so what we are looking at theologically in this book is huge. God providentially preserved his chosen people against all odds in order for Jesus to be born as promised to be the savior of the world. It's a great study in how God works through providence Providence basically means getting his will accomplished without violating the free will of men. Uh, Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a situation uh, where they step forward and uh, God uses them to save his people. What we're looking at devotionally is a call to fully committing our lives to God without the crisis, before the crisis. All of us probably fall into that somewhere on the spectrum where we put our walk with the Lord a little bit on cruise control or, uh, you know, everything's going fine, and then the crisis hits, and, and we have to kind of backpedal a little bit and, and get back into action. So <clears throat> devotionally, we want to be ready at all times. Even if I've been a believer for some time, this can really speak to me because spiritual apathy is an ever-present peril. Chapter 1 takes us back to the 5th century B.C. King, actually Ahasuerus of Persia. He's also known as Xerxes. That's how we know him. That's his Greek name. Uh, But he, in the book, is King Ahasuerus. I'll call him either Ahasuerus or Xerxes. So he's the same guy. 
He holds a lavish banquet, initially for his court and dignitaries, and afterwards for all the inhabitants of the capital city of Shushan. For the big finale, Ahasuerus orders his queen Vashti to come and display her beauty before the guests. She just flat out refuses. Furious, Ahasuerus has her removed from her position and makes arrangements to choose a new queen from a selection of the most beautiful young women from throughout the empire. There's a kind of forced perspective in the way this chapter is written. In verses 1 through 11, it's as if you're approaching the throne of the king. You're forced to look around at his world, and you're seduced by its splendor. But then in verses 12 through 22, it's as if you're sitting on the throne with Ahasuerus. You're forced to look within at his heart and see how it's enslaved to its natural passions. And so let's read the first nine verses and set the stage. It says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. Couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. They served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for the, so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So if you caught that, they partied for six months. This is some party. The king probably didn't assemble all his leaders at one time. That would have kept them away from their duties too long. It's likely that over a period of six months, Ahasuerus brought the officers to Shushan on a sort of rotation. He brought them all together for the seven-day city-wide feast finale. You're forced to walk through King Ahasuerus' palaces on an approach to his throne. The subtle suggestion, what's on display, is that you too can sit enthroned, at least over your own smaller empire, and enjoy the best that the world has to offer. And, and so, I mean, you know, the description of the things, they're just opulent, ex, uh, extravagant, uh, everything that the world of that day had to offer, and you were being brought into the king's palace, up to his throne, seeing all of that the world was. Persia represents the material world to you. The world can be a place of beauty and wealth and pleasure and power. If you're not careful, however, you're seduced by that. Instead of living for spiritual realities, you settle for material trifles. You gain the world but lose those things that are most important and meaningful. We don't want to go too mu uh, far into comparisons, but it is interesting knowing what we know about Daniel and his three friends a century earlier in Babylon 
and, and seeing Esther and Mordecai in Persia. And what's even more interesting is the Babylonian Empire was kind of against the Jews. They had conquered the Jews. The Persian Empire had given them the permission to go back to their land. And so, it, it, you know, I, I know because Esther is a Bible character, we always want to give her a pass and think that she was really godly, but she had to come to that after a crisis. She's absolutely not walking with God in a Jewish sense at all when we first meet her. And so, in a sense, Persia had drawn her in. She was excited to be on The Bachelor. She signed up for it. She got picked for it. Mordecai had an idea that she would win because she was extremely beautiful. But the things she had to do to become the king's wife were not according to God's law. And so she's an example of the seduction of the world. You do gain the world, but you lose those things that are most important and most meaningful. The wine vessels, I think, symbolize the whole affair. I don't know how many officials there were or how many people there were in the city, probably a lot, but it said every person had a custom-made golden goblet. No two were alike. I don't know how you even commissioned something like that. Can you imagine being, at first you're excited about the order, oh, the king is coming to me, he wants to commission a whole bunch of gold goblets. I've got just the thing, I've, that wedding that didn't happen, I've got a bunch of overstock you know, back here. And they say, no, you don't understand. Every one of them has to be custom. Man, I'd be pulling out my hair over something like that. I'd like to think they kept it as a souvenir. In their goblet, they drank the royal wine that was normally reserved just for the king. He broke out his best stuff. They held in their own hands a little part of the world's splendor and drank to their fill. Here's my, this is my goblet with the king's brew and this belongs to me, and, and this is the kind of uh, kingdom that I am a part of. Now, in verse 8, where it says the drinking was not compulsory, a better translation is each drank in his own way. The idea is that you could pace yourself or you could just get blitzed. It was up to you. It wasn't an idea here that th there was no idea of, of, of maintaining or not drinking. This was a very definite drinking party. Uh, and so it was, it was up to you to, to do whatever. Those of you who've come out of the world, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what this was all about. King Ahasuerus decided to go for the big clothes, bringing out Queen Vashti. This would, this would be the kind of the culmination of this six-month-long, one-week-long party to put Persia on the map. And he said, man... I'm going to bring Vashti out now, and it's going to blow your mind. Well, it blew his mind because on the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abakha, excuse me, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. Vashti in one beautiful package was everything Ahasuerus was trying to portray. She represented what the Persian material world had to offer. She was its beauty. She was its pleasure. It was the perfect exclamation point to this long party. 
We don't know why she said no. There's a lot of speculation as to what she was being asked to do and why she said no. It, it just, we don't know. Uh, and and uh, so just leave it at that. But she decided that she wasn't going to go on display in this drunken feast. And so she says no. Now, the thing that stands out to me are these seven eunuchs who served King Ahasuerus. The men closest to the king were always castrated. That way they could not have any children who would challenge the king for his throne. They were powerful men in a worldly sense, having access to the king and all the privileges of his palace, but they were by definition impotent at the same time. And so you have powerful, impotent men, and that is what the world makes you when you surrender to it. It offers you its wealth and its power and its pleasures and its splendors, and it leaves you impotent. It seduces you, but when you think you're going to sit on a throne and enjoy your own little kingdom, you find you've been rendered impotent. You are nothing more than a eunuch serving the king of this world. Make no mistake, there is a king in this world, and it's Satan, it's the devil, and he rules uh, his kingdom in a vicious, violent way, and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll let you get involved in it as far as you want to go, but you're not going to be any king. You're not going to be any control. I, I always crack up as a Christian watching uh, media where people find spells and enchantments where they can control demons and devils. What a joke. They only let you control them if it's to their advantage to take over. I mean, that, you, you understand none of that's true, right? There's no incantations by which you can control demons. Uh, and any stories like that, as I said, it's the demons just drawing you in. And these are super powerful uh, beings that want to, well, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and he lives to rob and kill and destroy. That's his, that's his motto. Rob, kill, destroy, let's go. And so, yeah, you, you want to you get into the world, you want to be part of the world, you want all the power and prestige of the world, you can have it. And then the devil will rob and kill and destroy you. You'll be a powerful, impotent individual. Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by his eunuchs, therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, having come right up to the throne, we, look, uh, at, we looked around at the world. Now we're going to look within, at the world within, as it were, as at the heart. In the case of Ahasuerus, he was a slave to his anger. His anger represents all of the works of our flesh that are a part of the sin nature we were born with. This poor guy had thrown a six-month party, and, and from all intents and purposes, everything had gone pretty well pretty much according to his plan. Everybody was pumped and drunk. And then a, a week-long party for all the people who lived in Shushan, just, you know, no, no work, just it's a week-long holiday where we're all just going to get drunk and, and just enjoy this. And, and then at the height of his success, his queen says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And immediately... He gets furious and angry. There's, it's, it's like a switch gets turned on because the sin nature takes over. He began by seeking some spiritual help, verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, 
for this was the king's manner towards all who knew uh, law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. The description, wise men who understood the times, means these guys were occult astrologers. They practiced things like divination and sorcery and astrology and dream research in order to try to predict the future and to give advice. They were uh, big on dreams just the way they were in Babylon. Uh, you remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar was always having dreams and he was calling for the wise men to interpret his dreams and they couldn't do it. Uh, and uh, uh, then you know he got tired of them and he said, uh, I want you to interpret my dream, but you need to tell me what my dream was first. And Daniel says, uh, I can do that because we serve the living God. And he does, and it blows their mind. So these are those kinds of guys, magi-type guys. The description, wise men who understood the times. And so this was spiritual help that he was seeking, but it wasn't biblical help. You know, the world is filled with spiritual help that is not biblical. Uh, just because they use terms like God or the name of Jesus, uh, there's a big gap between what people would consider spiritual and what we would consider biblical. One thing this tells me, however, before we talk more about that, it tells me that most people realize the material world is not enough. People innately know that they have a spiritual side and they will seek spiritual help. Haven't you been to, some of you have had the experience where you've been surprised at work or maybe at school or somebody who maybe you haven't even witnessed to them but they know you're a Christian and suddenly one day they come up to you and they're asking you for some kind of advice about their marriage or raising children or their job or something like that because they, need, they, they recognize that there's more to life and, and they, they are trying to find the answers and of course, the answers are in the Bible. The answers come from Christians who uh, depend upon the Bible and will stand on the Bible. Uh, but the world, of course, is filled with its own spiritual advice, and um, it's all some of it's pretty crazy. Uh, and uh, we want to. That's why we're. Hey, stick to the Bible. It's been working for for a long time. It's solid. We can trust it. It's truthful. I just. Uh, read a study the other day. I don't want to get this wrong. I'm trying to remember exactly. But essentially, oh, I, this is what it was. Psychology. Most of the psychological experiments that they do where they get data and they tell you how people are and stuff, most of them cannot be repeated with the same results. It's very interesting as far as the scientific method. You, you probably is fam more familiar with the scientific method than I am, but the idea is that you, you, once you find something out, you should be able to repeat it. And that means that it's true. And, and so when they do these psychological experiments and come up with their conclusions, uh, they took 100 different psychology experiments from, I don't know, the past 10 years, and they replicated them, and they came up with wildly different results, which tells you that that part of psychology is not a science. It's anybody's best guess. And so when people come... And they, they, maybe they call the church and they say, hey, can you recommend a professional 
psychological counselor. We say no, because uh, that person's not going to help you. It doesn't mean that we think we have the answers, but we know who does have the answers. God does in, in his word. And the answer is to walk with the Lord and to be discipled and to come to church and to witness to, of your faith and to pray and to read the Bible, those kinds of things. And, and we're not prejudiced, but psychology is a failed system. I remember when I studied psychology at the University of California, Riverside, I asked one of my professors once, because we were studying all these different systems of psychology, Skinnerian psychology, Maslowian psychology, uh, Jungian psychology, and they all approach things a little bit differently. And I said, which one of these has the greatest success rate? That's the one you want to get into, right? She said, well, they all have about the same success rate, and it's very poor in terms of actually helping people. And I thought, what? But I wasn't a Christian, and I was locked into getting a degree, so you just go with it. You figure you're going to help people somehow. So here I was, a, a, a drunk pothead whose marriage was failing, and I was going to become a counselor and help people with their marriage. <laughs> using a system of psychology that I picked out of the air from all the systems because none of them really work. Professional psychological counseling, 101, right there. So here's their best advice, verse 15. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persian media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be an excess of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout his empire for it is great, all the wives will honor their husbands, both small and great. Just a couple of quick things. Marriage must have been terrible in those days. If everybody was worried that just one example from Vashti was going to destroy all their marriage, I mean, this is crazy. And then what I like about this too, Vashti essentially got what she wanted in the end. She said, yeah, I'm not going to come in front of you. And, and so he says, okay, you're never going to come in front of me. Meh. <laughs> all right. Hey, that's a win-win if you're Vashti. So these guys, th their advice reveals their heart. They were small-minded men. They were mean. They were vindictive. They were cruel. They were selfish. And they did this mostly to flatter the king. The best spiritual advice that human religion and philosophy and psychology can give is always flawed because it comes from the sin nature. Only God can offer mercy and grace, forgiveness and peace. Verse 21, they replied, please the king and the princes, and the king did according to the words of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master of his house and speak in the language of his own people. Memucan probably got a book deal out of this. Memucan's marriage manifesto. 
His talk show, Memekin's Mastery of Marriage, was a must-see TV for husbands dealing with insubordinate wives. It sounds funny, to me anyway, not to you, but uh, <laughs> this is what we do today with those dispensing stupid advice. Most bookstores should have a section that says stupid advice. And, and, you know, and people would still buy it, but that's what it is. It's just stupid. Ahasuerus was a slave to the world within him. It made the world around him all the more dangerous. When the world appeals to your flesh and you have only religion and philosophy and psychology to guide you, man, you're a slave, no matter that you are seated on a throne. Ahasuerus starts off as, I mean, he looks so powerful. Does he not look powerful? Does he not look splendid? Does he not look like he's in control? Throwing a six-month party? Commissioning wine goblets that are custom-made? I mean, think of, the, think of what happened on eBay after that was over, you know? I mean, wow, one-of-a-kind Ahasuerus goblet. You get your hands on one of those in Greece. I mean, you had something going. But he was impotent. In the end, his wife just said no to him, and his, his entire visage changed. Everything fell to pieces, and he got into the flesh, and he couldn't find any help for it except these guys that he had surrounded himself with that were stupid and mean and, and, and small and didn't really, you know. Somebody needed to stand up to him and say, hey, Ahasuerus, I know you're the king and all, and you're going to behead me. But what you're doing is wrong. You need to honor the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. Well, I think Daniel would have done that, don't you? But he did do that when he had the opportunity. You know, when you become a Christian, God gives you a new nature. The Holy Spirit lives within you, giving you power to say no to the flesh and yes to obeying God. Then the Word of God gives you a new and proper perspective on the world around you. You're in the world, but never of the world. You can enjoy much of it without being seduced by any of it. You're only passing through it on your home to heaven. God is seated on the throne, and you're happy to let him sit there. You're his servant, but you're not a eunuch in God's kingdom. Instead, you are promised power, spiritual power. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the treasurer of all of Ethiopia, one of the most powerful men in the world, traveling back to Ethiopia after having been disappointed in Jerusalem, he didn't find out what he came to find out. And there's Philip, just a guy, uh, sitting on the road, the desert, he's essentially a bum. And he attaches himself to this caravan, and he starts witnessing to the Ethiopian. He leads him to faith in Jesus Christ, baptizes him, and then he gets raptured from one place to the next. And the Ethiopian's like, hey, let's go to Ethiopia and start a church. And church tradition says that he did just that. But when the story begins, you if somebody were to say to you, hey, you don't know anything about the Bible, I'm going to show you two men, Ethiopian eunuch, treasurer, second in command to Candace of Ethiopia, and Philip. Who do you think is the most powerful man in this equation? Well, you and I would say, well, it's Philip because he represents the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what he can speak is power and forgiveness and eternal life. 
all the things that this guy is seeking and cannot find apart from God. The world attempts to seduce you. It won't succeed if you remember you have a lover in Jesus and are betrothed to him and that he'll be returning for you any moment and that you should be ready for that. Amen? Amen.